President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, go to You will fall in fire. Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting. And personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm your host, Luke Woodruff. The content presented in this series is edited from the audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. We're kicking off our series with TV 101, an entertaining yet highly informative tutorial on the television business. Evan Shapiro, Executive Vice President of Digital Enterprises at NBC Universal and former President of Participant Media Television, Sundance Channel, and IFC Channel, videotaped a condensed version of the 14-week television management class he teaches at New York University's Stern School of Business for the Cable Center's Mavericks Master's Forum in 2012. Shapiro's presentation is a valuable educational tool for anyone who has an interest in a career in television and how the business works. With his friendly and casual demeanor and a touch of humor, he compresses a wide spectrum of complex concepts step-by-step into understandable and digestible elements. Shapiro begins with the history of television divided into three eras, the network era, the multi-channel era, and the post-network era. From there, he covers the industry's four revenue drivers, subscription fees, advertising, syndication, and licensing. Then, he walks through the processes and ecosystem of how program networks create value for their viewers, distributors, and advertisers in the areas of programming, marketing, operations, and administration. For this premiere episode, President and CEO of the Cable Center, Jana Henthorne, sat down with Evan Shapiro to discuss what, if anything, has changed since his 2012 lecture. They also discussed the evolution of television and how it has or has not affected the art that is television. And now, Jenna Hinthorne and Evan Shapiro. So this is, it's great to be back together with you. When, when did we first start doing um, the Cable Mavericks lectures? Was that 07? I think so, yeah. I think it was before, so it was, bef- it was before... I had been GM for a while of IFC, but I, it was before I took over Sundance Channel. So yeah, it was probably 06, 07. Yeah. Yeah. Those are good times. Good times. Yeah. And, good times. Yeah. yeah. And then the master's forum and, and you put together this great lecture series. And uh, now we're going to do podcasts. And yeah. we're, do- we're doing a series of 12 and you're going to be the premier as always. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I read through the transcript of the lecture you did, and that was when you were uh, teaching at NYU, right? Still am, yes. Yeah. Oh, you're still doing that? Okay. And you said that uh, TV is the most talked about, most tweeted, most followed, most likely medium on earth. Do you think, uh, or most liked, do you think that's still true? Yeah, um, I, I think the definition of television has changed dramatically since uh, 2012. Um, but I do think television, which is a serialized storytelling um, format and, and art made by a creator over the course of many episodes, is still the most powerful uh, medium on earth. Um, it is still, you know, whether it's on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, CISO, um, or HBO, AMC, USA, 
Bravo it is still the most discussed, most influential content on earth. In the 2012 lecture, you said that the best work that's being done in moving images is being done in cable. Still believe that? I would, say, I would amend that. I would say it's the, the best work in moving image is done, being done in television. And whether that's broadcast, I'm, it's hard to, hard to find a show that's getting as much buzz and, and uh, as much adoration as This Is Us right now, which is an NBC show. Um, mm-hmm. But I also think if you look at, you know, just the stuff that we did on Take My Wife, but or, or you look at uh, uh, Issa Rae's new show on HBO, I just think the quality of content across the board is still, you know, in the television format. Not that there aren't great movies also being made, um, but I think just as far as pure volume of great high quality content and the best artists on the world, they're, you know, they're in television. How do you define television? Because, you know, NCTA just changed their name to yeah. Internet and Television. Yeah. It felt dated to me that we were television. How do you, how do you define it? I don't think so. I think uh, television, you know, the, to me, television is not about a box. It's not, a, it's not about a, a time slot. Um, it's not about a device. It's about um, how, an, how an author chooses to tell a story, how an artist chooses to create a narrative. And so to me, if it's, if it's done in a way that is predominantly serialized, although not exclusively, and it's done in a, a much more intimate um, much more intimate style than would be seen on a you know one time one night only movie than that to me is television whether it's streamed or or put through a, uh, uh, an MVPD box to a television screen. Okay, so you you see it as all the different platforms. Yeah, I, I mean to me, sculpture is sculpture whether you're working with clay or felt. It's still it's still sculpture. Um, TV is TV whether. You know, you choose to put it up on on a on a linear television feed or put it up on a on a streaming service. So, in your opinion, Evan, uh, what's the biggest change or impact since you did this lecture series in 2012? I think the biggest change is, and it was something that I, I had I, I wrote a, I wrote about this on HuffPo that year. Um, is that the consumer is now in significantly more control than they've ever been. Um, whether they choose to subscribe to the traditional pay TV bundle or choose to create their own bundle using OTT and some combination of other services, um, that, that whole idea that, that the control was moving from the, the gatekeeper to the audience, has it's, it's now not coming, it's now here. Right. Hey, where else are you? Are you still involved with the Ghetto School? Yeah, I'm the chairman of the board of the Ghetto Film School. Yeah. Um, and we opened our LA chapter about 24 months ago, um, and it's just really blowing up in in a in a wonderful way. It's a, just a great organization. Um, you know, we we have our uh, we have a program here in New York, which actually helps run the country's first uh, public high school for cinema and film. Uh, called the Cinema School in the South Bronx. And then we opened in our LA chapter about 24 months ago, and it's just doing incredibly well. You have such a dedication to students and learners of all ages, including all of us at the Cable Center. Um, I've always admired that about you. Thank um, you. you. You've been working with us, as I said before, we decided it was 2006, 2007. You lectured, you you worked on the uh, Mavericks. 
and the master's forum. And can you, it, I love what you did at the University of Texas, but there were so many others. Like, do you have a favorite or favorite story? Um, UT was, was definitely, I mean, I did, I think I did two or three visits to University of Texas and I, I have a, Austin holds a special place in my heart. So, uh, you know, I really do love going there. Um, and, and, and a couple of times I went there and I did a, we did a, like a conversation with John Pearson, which was amazing. Um, so that was, that was really amazing. Going back to my alma mater at University of Massachusetts. Well, it's not my alma mater because I dropped out, but going back to my, going back to where I was supposed to graduate from. Uh, uh, at UMass was a lot of fun and, and very gratifying. So those are all, but they were all good. I mean, DePaul, um, you know, they were all a lot of fun. Um, and, and then, you know, I think that my favorite part of the whole Mavericks experience was transforming it into this masterclass um, that we did a couple of years with Cable Center and now Cable Center is the sponsor of. Um, to me, um, we've, we've, we've hit so many great young people at that, at that forum over the last five years. Um, you know, and, and many of them still keep in touch. Um, it's just been really enormously gratifying. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I remember those lectures you did, um, you were just, the, the students just came up and were all around you and, uh, we couldn't get you out of there. <laughs> Had to go catch well, a plane. I like That's it. Great. It's, it's, um, you know, I, I'm now approaching my 50th birthday. So to, to, yeah, to, to be able to, to remain that in touch with the next generation of consumers, but also potential executives has been, you know, just really, it's, it's helped keep me younger than I think I, I, keeps me younger than I am chronologically, chronologically speaking. Indeed. Indeed. Hey, um, so what advice would you give to students today? Um, <laughs> the, the, a, a student who's interested in getting into the entertainment industry, um, to me, the, the most important thing is to, A, try to really define your talents. Um, I, I'm a big believer that, that skills are taught, but talents are innate. Um, and the things that come easiest to you are your talents. And so it's going to take you a lifetime to figure out what they are kind of perfectly. But the day you start journeying towards that destination is the day you start trying to figure out, you know, truly what your future wants to be. And then the second part is, um, you know, I think probably you know this as well as anybody over the last 10 years in your career there. Um, to say that any of us in the industry really know what's going to happen next in our industry is is really optimistic. Uh Um, I think we can have good theories as to what's going to happen next, but I think we've all kind of had to wake up stupid often on a daily basis because every time we think we know what's going on, stuff changes. Um, And so uh, to me, in my mind, if you're 20 years old or 19 years old, you're as likely to have a really strong thesis as to what's going to come next as me at 50. So, you know, read as much. Almost 50 almost 50. Read, <laughs> read, as, read as much as you can and develop your thesis. It does, you don't have to be dogmatic about it, but being able to walk into a room and, and talk to somebody who's going to be hiring you or, or giving you money or whatever and understanding your place in the media ecosystem and how that kind of um, reflects the changes that are happening writ large is as, is as good an 
is as good as an opinion as anybody else's, really. And so have a good thesis, you know, evolve it over time because you're going to have to, um, but really be interesting and interested and, and try to combine those two things together. And if students or uh, anybody wants to get a job in an industry, they need to listen to these podcasts because yeah. you have a lot of great information that you're sharing there. Um, yeah. On, so we appreciate the work you put into that and Thanks. just appreciate working with you, Evan. Thanks. And, and I will say, you know, my relationship with the, the Cable Center is, is, is one of the oldest and deepest I have in the industry. And so it's meant a lot to me professionally, but it's also meant a lot to me personally. It's, it's been one of the most enjoyable and rewarding relationships I have in the industry from, from any of the professional organizations that I, that I deal with. So it's, uh, you know, this, I've said this a thousand times, anytime you need anything from me, I'm there because you've just been, it's just been a great, great experience for me. Thank you, Evan. We, we feel exactly the same way. And I think these podcasts are going to be a big hit. Yeah, I'm really glad you're doing it. It's a great idea. Thanks so much. And now, TV 101. My name's Evan Shapiro. I'm president of Participant Media Television. I'm here today on behalf of the Cable Mavericks Masters Forum to give you TV 101. Now, this is a 14-week class that I teach at NYU that I'm compressing down to 20 minutes. So if I talk really fast, I'm sorry, I gotta get it all in here. And if I flub up a line, you gotta apologize too because these guys gotta kick me out in a couple hours. So I'm gonna go as fast as I can and I'm gonna give you as much information as I can. But there'll be much more information at the Cable Mavericks Masters Forum in October. You can log on and watch it here via the internet or you can come in person at the Paley Center. There's information all around me on the website. So look for it. Now, let's get started. Television is the job that I have, I work in TV. Um, And television is a great career because it touches pretty much every person in the civilized world. Television came about in the 1940s. It really got popular in the 1950s. And then it slowly, over the ensuing couple of decades, between the 1960s and today, became the most popular, most watched medium on the planet. I think it's the most important medium on the planet. Why? Because it is, despite the advent of the internet, despite all these movies that take up theaters and are big blockbusters, television is the most talked about, most tweeted, most followed, most liked medium on earth. And I think that the best work that's being done in moving images is being done on cable right now. So I'll give you a brief history of TV till today, and then I'll talk about how television works today. Is that cool? All right, let's get started. So, television breaks down into three major eras. The first major era is what they call the network era. And the network era was really characterized by the networks. Three networks for the most part of it. So, these networks were founded in the 1940s and 50s. Um, They were and are now known as NBC, ABC, and CBS, although they had different names back then. And these were the three only choices that you had when you had a television set. When I was a kid, you had a big, huge box sitting in your living room, and you had actually, I know this is strange, get off your couch, get up, and turn the channel. And you had three choices. And then became an era that's also called uh, UHF, and a few more channels were added to it. But generally speaking, there were three choices for most of this era. And this went really right up until the 1980s. What's characterizing uh, in the the network era is no choice. 
three networks. You had three things on. There was no pause button. There was no remote control. In, for a lot of the network era, there was no color television. Then there was color television, but there was no way to record anything. You watched what was on. Probably the best example of this was the peak in the early 1970s with the number one show on television. That show was called All in the Family. Now, what was interesting about this show, it was a very controversial show. It was this classic sitcom about a, a blue-collar family uh, in New York called The Bunkers. And you can look at it on YouTube. I'm sure there are clips of it all over the place. Um, what was cool about this show was that it took on major issues of the day. Race, the Vietnam War, uh, feminism, any number of different things. And at its height in the 1970s, in 1972, this was the number one show on television. And every single week, 66 million people watched this show. Not on Netflix and later and on VOD at once. When this show was on, 66 million people all across the country sat down and watched it. And this wasn't the extra special episode after the Super Bowl. This was every week for 22 weeks. Mom, dad, sister, brother all sat down together on the couch and watched this show. This was, uh, so 66 million people was the total audience on average. This equals a 54 share. Now, a 54 share means that 54% of the people watching television were watching this show. That's kind of mind-boggling. When you think about it now, the five major television networks that are on the air right now rarely get above a 35 share combined, all together. So this is a major demonstration of where we've come since this era. Now, let's move on to the next era. So the next era is what we call the multi-channel era. The multi-channel era is best exemplified by cable. Many, many, many channels. And cable started um, as a way to connect your television from your home into a huge antenna on a hill somewhere so your, your home got better reception. And then slowly over time, they took that cable and they put it underneath the ground and connected it to one generator of content, what's called a head end or a headquarters, you might call it. One place where the television was being pumped out through these pipes underground into your home. What's strange is that as they laid these, those pipes, they also laid the groundwork with, for what became the infrastructure of the internet. But that's a side fact. We'll get back to that in a little while. What the multi-channel era did was it took cable television into the home. It made many, 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 many channels available all at once. The number one thing it did was increase choice. So this was the major shift of the multi-channel era. Choice meant that it wasn't just three networks anymore. Now it was dozens. MTV, um, A&E, Bravo, many, many channels that no one ever had before. HBO came along now. And this was the advent of what we call the pay TV era. Suddenly, you weren't getting television for free over the air anymore. You were paying to subscribe to television into your home. You got many more channels. You got way better um, reception. The picture was better. It was more consistent. 
Before then, when it rained, the reception was bad. When the wind blew down your antenna from your roof, the reception was bad. Now you paid the cable company to come to your home, install a box, and give you television piped to your home on a constant basis. So you went from three channels to many, 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 many channels. Okay? At the same time, um, what happened was we went, we added not just um, choice, but we added convenience. I think that's spelled correctly. Um, what, what I mean by this is the remote control. Now, the remote control is something that I'm sure all of you out there in television land take for granted. But at one point, like I said earlier, you had to get off your butt, walk up to the television, and change the channel. And when cable first started, there was this box that came on a leash connected to the back of the television. And you'd actually have to punch the button on the channel that you want. And then slowly, over time, the remote control came into the home with a combination of two things. The cable box there was a remote control that usually came with the cable box. But also, at the same time, another big, big important part of convenience was the VHS. Actually, it's the video recorder that came into the home. And originally, there were two versions. There was VHS and there was beta. Beta went away, just lost out to VHS. So VHS, and again, those kids out there probably don't even remember a VHS, but they're those black boxes that are tapes that you put into a thing and it plays. Um, this, is a, this was a major addition to convenience. So when you take choice cable, you take the remote control, the VHS also came with a remote control. Um, these two things together, the VHS machine and the remote control, made television watching way more convenient. Suddenly, if you weren't home and you wanted to watch Seinfeld, you just programmed your v VHS to record it for you. And when you got home, you could watch it. You can pop it in whenever you want. You could buy television shows or movies on VHS tapes and pop them in and watch them whenever you want it. Now, again, this is something that we all today take incredibly for granted. But the idea that you could watch something whenever you wanted to watch it is a remarkable, remarkable advent. It changed television almost overnight. So convenience was incredibly important here. You know what? I need to erase the board. In addition to choice and convenience, another important word, another important aspect of the multi-channel era is theatricality. Theatricality Is that right? Okay, good. So theatricality means sound, picture. The quality of the sound and the picture and all aspects of the home uh, entertainment choice became way better during the multi-channel era. The reason is that cable pipe could carry a lot more information than the airwaves could. So the sound became better and the picture became way better. And this culminated at the end of the multi-channel era with something that was a, another major shift in television viewing, and that is High definition. High definition television is far clearer, a far better picture, actually carries better sound as well. And it could not have happened in your home without that thick cable pipe running from the head end to the neighborhood to your home. So during this era, you have three big shifts. You have convenience, you have choice, and you have theatricality. That created a, a far more diverse viewing experience. But that was not the end of the spectrum. We'll move on to the next era now. 
The last error, or probably not the last error, but the error we're in now is what happened after the multi-channel error. And that error is called the post-network error. Now, the post-network error does not mean that there are no networks around. Obviously, there are television networks, many, many good, big, important television networks, ones that you probably love. But the concept of the post-network error is that control shifted from the network to the consumer. Let me talk about what that is. So remember, those words theatricality, uh, choice, and convenience. Now we're going to actually give control. This was the single largest most important advent of the post-network era. And this, this era started, let's say, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, and really took off in the mid-90s and, and to this era. And control means you are now in control. You can choose to watch whatever you want, wherever you want. The big, big part of this was the advent of the DVR. DVR, or digital video recorder, is something that is a tapeless recording device and playback device. The difference between the DVR and the VHS is really, really important. First of all, there's no tape, so there's no storage problem. Um, the second part of it is it's much, 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 much easier to use this. Programming a VHS machine was difficult. And if you remember, the joke about the VHS machine is that everybody's home had a VHS machine that was blinking 12 all the time because no one knew how to set the clock. The DVR, which started with a machine called TiVo, this was something that hooked right into your cable system and was much more easy to pro much easier to program, uh, much more organic to the whole viewing experience, and way easier to play things back. Um, it was easier to fast forward, it was easier to record. The whole experience changed the way people watch television. Now, TiVo was popular, but it was not ubiquitous. What happened was the cable companies, um, and I'm going to give you a new term here. This term is multi-video programming distributors, multi-video programming distributors. And this is what the companies um, that are cable companies are now known as because they, they distribute many channels of programming over many different um, platforms. Um, TiVo uh, was a great start, but when the DVR got built into your cable box by the MVPDs, it became a far easier device to use. You could record many shows at once. You could move programs from one room to the other. Um, and suddenly, the control that the consumer had was substantially higher. Okay, And so when you became in control of all of your programming choices, you became the programmer. You became the network. You could record and watch many different shows um, whenever you wanted. And the most important part of this is that suddenly, at 10 o'clock, one of the most watched channels on television is the DVR. The second major advent of the post-network era was a really substantial paradigm shift. This is mobility. Mobility is important because now it's not whatever I want, whenever I want. It's now wherever I want. So think about this for a second. And, I'm, and the, you know, video on, on mobile phones is, is fine. But when things like um, online networks were created through the laptop and now the iPad and other tablet devices, um, you can now take your programming with you wherever you want for the most part. So it's not just control. I can watch as many different shows during the course of a week at whatever time I want. It is now wherever I want. So now in every home, 
you can create a, a very asymmetrical viewing experience that's unlike anything that's come before it. So go back to um, All in the Family. Okay, so All in the Family had 66 million people watching it every week, all at once, because they had no choice. Now that same show, let's use American Idol for example. American Idol, most popular show on television right now, um, but because of all these new devices. Um, the audience that watches it live is far slimmer. In fact, the number one show in America, by comparison, is American Idol, okay? And it's watched on average by 21 million people. Number one show in America in 1972, 66 million people. Number one show in 2012, American Idol, 21 million people. In fact, you have to add up the three most popular shows in America at any given time to equal the audience of that one sitcom in 1972. Doesn't mean fewer people are watching television. In fact, more people are watching television and they're watching more television than ever. They're just watching it in different rooms on different devices at different times whenever they want. Dad's in the living room watching one thing, mom's in uh, the den watching something else, brother's in his room watching the third thing, and sis could be sitting on the couch next to dad but plugged into a device watching her own thing. And you've got four different people asymmetrically viewing four different shows at the same time. So control and mobility are the major advents of this post-network era. And the, the, the paradigm shift here is the gatekeepers who control networks are no longer programming you. You are programming yourself. Now we'll move on. So that brings us to TV Today. TV Today is a completely different experience than it was when television started. Is a lo much larger universe of people watching television, but they're doing so in smaller and smaller audiences. The 66 million people who watch All in the Family all at once has been replaced by the 21 million people who watch uh, American Idol or the 6 million people who watch Jersey Shore, the number one show on cable television right now. So you can see how different the composition of the audience is. Mass to much more niche. So I'm going to talk about the state of television today, I'm going to talk about how the business works, and I'm going to tell you how you might fit into that business, okay? So let's start with the universe, the television universe. Television universe is the number of people who have TV. That's how we figure out the base. In America right now, there are 116 million television homes, okay? That's not the number of people, that's the number of homes with television, and that fluctuates year to year. Of that 116 million, 106 million are pay TV homes. So pay TV is just what it sounds like. You pay to have television brought to your home. There are three major ways to pay for television. The first and largest is cable, okay? Cable is that cable that comes to your home and plugs into the box in the back of your, cell, back of your set. The second is what's called DBS, Digital Broadcast Satellite. These are the satellites, DISH and Direct, and that's a big chunk of homes as well. And the third is what we call RBOX, or they're telephone companies that are bringing television uh, to your home. So I'm just going to call those telephones. And this is AT&T and Verizon. Those are the three major ways that you can bring television to your home via pay. So one of the biggest shifts from the network era to today, the post-network era, is what people are watching. I don't mean Jersey Shore versus Pawn Stars. I mean what channels they're watching on um, and the programming that they're watching. So just for edification, I'm going to give you the last 10 or 11 years. This is 2000. 
and this is 2012. Okay, and I'm going to start with the broadcast networks. This will be broadcast networks. In 2000, on any given night, about 60% of the people who were watching television were watching one of the big broadcast networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox. We'll also throw CW in there and maybe even Univision. Okay, so 60% were watching broadcast uh, in 2000. You go fast forward to today, and this number on average is about 30 Six percent. So from 60 percent in 2000, a decade later, we're down to 36 percent of the people who are watching television on average on any given night are watching broadcast networks. So now this is cable, and this is all of cable on this one little blue pen. In 2000, about 40 percent of the people who are watching television were watching on some cable channel. Doesn't mean 40% were watching one cable channel. A lot of them were watching a lot of different channels. And over the ensuing decade, what's happened is around 64, 64% on any given night, 64%, almost seven out of every 10 people watching television are watching a cable channel. Not a specific cable channel again, but all of cable. But this is an enormous shift. And the advent of cable and the remote control and something else really cool, the IPG, the in-program guide, which allows you to shop for shows while you're watching another show, that became a really great device to get people to go from one channel to another. Interestingly enough, just last week, on Thursday night, which used to be the big must-see TV night on broadcast television, 80% of the television audience was watching something on cable which means only two in 10 were watching something on broadcast. This shift is one of the biggest changes from the network era to the post-network era. So the other major shift beyond what people are watching on television is how the business works in TV these days. In 1972, when All in the Family was the number one channel and you could reach 60 million people on one channel on any given night all across the year, the primary and almost exclusive way revenues were generated for television was through advertising. Now, when you have all these different pay television channels out there, um, the revenues have become much more bifurcated and actually fragmented in a number of different ways. The business model itself has changed. If you want to understand what's on television and why, you have to understand how the revenues come in and how the expenses go out. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of this little seminar how the money comes into television and where it goes. Because if you understand this, getting a job in television becomes a lot easier. So let's go to how the money comes in, revenues of television right now. The revenues of the television business today come through four major streams. Here they are. First, draw a circle. Next, split it into fours. And these are the four major revenue streams. Subscription fees. Remember how I talked about the various different ways television get into the home? Those are the fees that consumers pay to the cable operators, the DBS providers, and the telephone companies to deliver the television to their home. It's also how those companies pay the cable networks for that programming. The second one, Advertising. Advertising has been helped along by other revenue streams, but it has not gone away. It is still a substantial portion of the revenues of the television business. The third,
syndication. Now, by syndication, I can mean any number of different things, and I'll get into that in a second. But basically, this is taking the programming off of the original channel that was on and distributing it through different streams. The fourth stream licensing. Again, this comes in many different forms, and I'll get into the details, but basically this is taking the brand or the brands that are generated by a programming entity, so a brand name like an HBO or a Nickelodeon or a brand name like a SpongeBob SquarePants, um, and then taking revenues off of that. But I'll get into that in a second. Let's get into sub fees. So subscriber fees, remember, goes two ways. It goes from the consumer to the MVPD, multi-video program distributor, and from the MVPD back to the programmer, the cable networks, and the, actually the broadcast networks as well. So let's dissect how that revenue is generated and brought in. Subscriber fees are generated, like I said, the transaction through the consumer to the MVPD. The MVPDs, the biggest ones in the country, are Comcast, DirecTV, so this is cable, this is DBS, Dish, also DBS, Time Warner, cable, um, Cox cable, Charter cable, Verizon, this is a telephone company, and Verizon is a very special uh, kind of uh, um, MVPD. They actually laid fiber to the home. So this is a fiber cable, but a, a real fiber optic cable to the home, and they're in certain markets across the country. And their, their product is called Fios. So Verizon is a telephone company that you can get telephone service from them, wireless service from them, but you can also get fiber optic, optic cable to the home called Fios. Another telephone company that does television is AT&T. So AT&T, you know them as a wireless company, you know them as a phone company, but they also do um, television. And their product is called Uverse. And Uverse is interesting. Unlike uh, Verizon that does uh, fiber to the home, their product is what we call IP or internet protocol. It's a completely different way of delivering television to the home. Um, some other players are uh, Mediacom. And this is a cable company. Cablevision. This is a cable company. Um, and Insight. And this is a cable company. So these are almost all of the, these are the major MVPDs. These are the largest MVPDs um, in the country. So amongst all of these providers, this is about 90 million pay t of the pay TV homes in America. It's not all of them. Remember, there was about 106 million of them. The rest of the, the providers, uh, the rest of the MVPDs are much smaller. They're 100,000, 200,000, 500,000 home um, uh, companies. And a lot of them, or most of them, are chunked into an association called the 
NCTC Association. They work together to negotiate rates with cable companies, although they're very small systems all across the country. So the big ones in this are Blue Ridge, um, Buckeye, uh, Atlantic. Um, they're you know hundreds of thousands of homes, whereas Comcast, for example, is 22 million homes. Um, DirecTV is around 19 or 20 million homes. Uh, Dish is around 14 million homes. Uh, Verizon is about 4 million homes. AT&T is about 3.5, 4 million homes. Cablevision is about 3, 3.4 million homes. So you can see these are the big chunks. Now, we're going to move on and we're going to talk about the different ways that these MVPDs deliver the product of television to your home. So we're going to talk about the basic economics of the MVPDs and the programmers and the subs. So I'm going to draw a little diagram here. Bear with me. So this is uh, this is you, the television consumer, and this is your television. Okay. Nobody uses antennas anymore, but if I don't draw the antennas, it doesn't look like a television. Um, this is uh, the programmer. So. Um, that says programmer. Believe me, I can read it. It's real close. Um, these would be people like HBO, uh, AMC, Bravo. Okay? And then this is the MVPD. MVPD. So remember, this is Comcast, Time Warner, Cablevision, um, uh, Cox, and on down the line. Okay, so the programmer makes a program and then they sell that programming to the MVPD. So this is um, an exchange that is uh, X pennies per month per subscriber. Okay, and then you multiply that times 12 and you get the overall yearly revenue from the MVPD to the programmer. So for every Comcast subscriber that subscribes to HBO or AMC or Bravo, they the MVPD, Comcast in this case, would pay HBO X number of dollars or cents per month per subscriber every month, 12 months. That's how that revenue exchange works. Okay. Then in exchange, the MVPD charges the consumer for the services to the home. Um, and so there are many different tiers of service. Um, the, the tiers that you get, there's digital basic, um, there's expanded basic, um, there are premium channels, so HBO and Stars and Epics and Showtime are premium channels. Those are channels that you have to, in, or, in order to get them in your home, you have to choose to subscribe individually to those channels yourself. But the other channels, most of the other channels are in what's called tiers. Digital Basic comes with things like CNN and ESPN and usually Bravo and things like that. And then there are tiers, um, sports tiers, movie tiers, family tiers. And where you are on that spectrum as a programmer dictates how much you can charge the MVPD. And frankly, how many tiers you have in your home as a consumer dictates how much you pay as a consumer to the MVPD. Now, of course, these MVPDs, or most of them, have other products that they sell as well. They also sell high-speed data. This has been an enormously successful thing. Um, in fact, many consumers uh, say that the high-speed connection that they have to their home is more important than any other um, utility that they get in their home. Um, they also sell telephone. 
So what's interesting is that telephone and high-speed data, these new products that the cable companies uh, and the MVPDs are selling to the consumer happened almost accidentally. These companies, the MVPDs, the cable companies, paid trillions of dollars to lay pipes to homes all over the country. And originally, the only thing it carried was what we call analog television. Um, very th- heavy um, data that turned into television pictures on your television set. But as um, the, the era switched from network era to multi-channel era to post-network era, um, and the television signal went from analog to digital, even in high def, the information became lighter to carry over the pipes, and the spectrum that was available to the MVPD and the cable operator became far greater. When that spectrum opened up, that enabled them to put through things like high-speed data and telephone. So that changed the nature of the business, and um, that is uh, the basic economic um, standpoint of the business today from an MVP and subscriber standpoint. So let's move on to another revenue stream, and we'll do advertising now. So the advertising uh, revenue stream is actually the single oldest uh, revenue stream in the television business. In the early days, um, advertising actually paid for the entire production cost of the show itself. There were single sponsors. There was things like Texaco Star Theater. Um, and in fact, the word soap operas comes from the fact that in the early days, those shows were single sponsored by soap companies. That's where the word soap opera comes from. So advertising today has created a much more diverse revenue stream. There's individual 30-second spots. There are a number of different ways to go about it, and I'll break those down right now. So the first and single largest is what's called national advertising. Um, and this is you know, pretty obvious what it means, but national advertising means that you're buying an ad across all the entire country, and you're reaching an audience inside that channel, whether that's broadcast or on cable. Um, but really, the, the, the big part of this is that the national advertisers pay a higher rate, um, and the rate that advertising is sold in is CPM. CPM stands for cost per, what does the M stand for? Thousand, because of the Roman numerals. I'm getting Roman numeral lessons here, not just television. So CPM is the that's the currency of the television business. Okay, so the CPMs on national advertising are the highest in television in the television business. Okay, there's another form of national advertising though that pays a lower CPM um, because of the, the the different way that they buy. So this is called direct response. So direct response are ads that have a phone number or a website at the end of the ads, and they are direct response. Um, National advertisers pay a uh, guaranteed CPM, okay? Um, But if the show that they're buying their uh, advertising in doesn't reach the audience that they were promised, they get what's called a make good, okay? So the national advertiser pays a high CPM. But if the show audience doesn't reach the expectations, they basically get a rebate. They don't get their money back, but they get to run additional advertising until they get the number of viewers, the number of impressions that they were promised by the network. Direct response pays a much lower CPM, but they do not get make goods. They don't get guarantees. 
They're not guaranteed a certain level of audience. They're guaranteed a certain kind of audience, so they know who they're buying, but there's no promise by the network on the number of impressions that are going to be generated. Okay? And then, and I'm not going to get into the, every aspect of the advertising business here, just the biggest chunks. The, another big, big chunk here is local. Okay, so now local breaks down in a number of different ways. Um, you know, on the broadcast side, uh, you have NBC and CBS and ABC, but then you have your local um, broadcast affiliate, that station in your town that has the news of the night in the local. They do the weather, they do the sports. You know, they are WNBC or KNBC or you know the, the local station with your local anchors and all that happy chat. So the, that's the local station, and they sell a different whole portion of of the day. Um, uh, advertising to advertisers. On the cable side, you have the local cable system. So you have the national cable system, Comcast, which has pockets, regional pockets all over the country. Um, And then they get a section of time per hour that they are allowed to sell for local advertising. So let's say you're watching your favorite television shows. So let's say your favorite television show is The Colbert Report. Um, Inside that show, what you'll find is most of the advertising time, or uh, well, if this is the show itself, um, of the uh, 30 minutes of television time, uh, around 22 minutes is program. The other eight minutes is some combination of advertising or promotion for that network. So Comedy Central will run their promos. But then you will also see national advertising. What you will also see is a little direct response, but you'll see about one minute per every half hour. So one minute for every 30 or two minutes for every hour will be given back to the MVPD to sell on a local basis. That's why when you're watching Colbert Report, you'll see a national commercial for a car company, and then it'll be followed by a commercial for Pete's Pizza, which is right down the street for you. What happens is the national programmer, the the network, sends what's called a tone to the NVPD's local affiliate. And that tells the local affiliate that it's time to put in your local commercial. So that's how the local television business. These are lower CPNs than all these others. Okay, really quickly, here's my little do-rag. The last one, or the last one I'm going to talk about, um, is called branded entertainment. Now, branded entertainment is mostly a national advertising, never see it for direct response. And branded entertainment is this kind of stuff that say, let's say you're watching The Real Housewives, and then they break and you see The Real Housewives talking about a product. Or actually, you know who does this really well is uh, Top Chef. Um, you know, they'll, you'll see inside the show uh, a certain brand of knives. Um, but you'll also see branded entertainment like a long piece, long form uh, commercial starring the talent uh, on a given network. Brand entertainment can actually take any number of different forms and it takes a long time to sell. It's much more difficult to make. You know, a national advertiser takes a 30 second spot and they plunk it into one of these breaks. That's an easy transaction. Brand entertainment takes a long time to sell to the advertising agency, and then the programmer or the network or the producer actually has to make that branded entertainment. And that's why it's actually probably one of the highest CPMs out there. You don't necessarily get a guarantee 
um, for brand entertainment. What you get is content connected to the program um, that it's inside. Now, there's a lot of evidence that this type of advertising is also the most effective because it's connecting directly to the content that the consumers come to watch. Um, it's a high engagement, high cost, but it's not necessarily what we would call scalable all the time. But this is a very, very fast-growing segment. And this, you know, this is about 98% of the television advertising that you're going to see out there. So next, I'm going to talk about how we measure the advertising and how the advertiser knows that they're getting their value. So you'll remember we talked about CPMs as the currency of the, uh, the television advertising business. Those CPMs are cost per thousand. Um, the, the, the question is, how do you measure those thousand? Who measures those thousand? The answer is really one company measures the vast majority of advertising and, and audience data out there. And that data is driven by a company called Nielsen. So Nielsen is a, a measurement company. They've been the, the, it's actually called AC Nielsen Company. It was founded by a guy named AC Nielsen a long, long time ago. And they are really the single most important measurement company in all of television. Um, what's interesting is that they use around, and I am generalizing here, so don't necessarily hold me to this, although this is up on the internet so everybody can watch it and come back at me. But they use a, a universe of around 25,000 homes to create a sample large enough to tell us who's watching what in America. So how do they do that? This is how they do that. So there are 116 million television homes, okay? So that's the universe. Now, a rating is done usually in a, 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 a 1.0 or a 0.56. They're decimal points. So a 1.0 rating, this is called a household rating, household rating. A 1.0 household rating on a total universe of 116 million homes equals basically 1.16 households. So 1.0 rating is 1.1 million, million households. So when you see a rating, a household rating, and it demonstrates this, it's basically a percentage. It means 1% of the overall universe has watched. And so you just do the basic math and you get the percentage. Now, what's interesting, this is households, okay? People don't usually sell advertising in households. They sell by what's called demos. And demos are sections of the populace by age and sex. So the most popular, the most valuable demo is the 18 to 49 demo. This is what you will hear. When uh, CBS usually wins households, Fox usually wins 18 to 49. This is the most valuable demo out there. So usually when a, on a show wins a night or you're talking about a popular show, you're talking about the number of adults, 18 to 49. So what's interesting is because every household is more than one person. So one household could be three people, could be four people. Um, the size of the universe of 18 to 49 is around 132 million people, adults, 18 to 49. So it's different. It's a different universe. So a 1.0 rating against this demo means 1.32, let's do it over here, 1.32 million adults, 18 to 49. Now, if you sell households, you get one CPM. The more specific you get as far as the demo that you sell, 
the more valuable it is to the advertiser because they're targeting a specific demography. Okay, so if you're targeting 18 to 49s and you're selling against 18 to 49s, you get a higher CPM than if you're just selling households or a larger audience. Um, if you get more specific, let's say women 18 to 49. Oops. So women 18 to 49, um, there is an available universe of around 65 or 66 million women to 18 to 49. So a 1.0 against women 18 to 49 would be around 650,000 women 18 to 49. You can do a much smaller number against this much slimmer demographic because it's more targeted and therefore your CPMs are, are um are higher. So let's go to a different demographic. Um, actually, a very, 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 very valuable demographic because it's incredibly hard to reach. 18 adults, 18 to 34. In 18 to 34, there are around, again, around 67, 68 million people in that demo. So a, a 1.0 against this demo would be around 680,000 adults, 18 to 34. This is very valuable audience because it's a very hard audience to reach on any medium, but specifically on television, because they do disintermediate. And that word means they shift. They time shift. They move onto different devices. So when you can reach a really big audience in the 18 to 34 demographic, you can charge a very high CPM. A great example of that would be Adult Swim. They get a very, very large block of this very, very specific audience, um, and they get them live because the, sh the shows that they run on Adult Swim are on very late at night, and people tend to watch them live as opposed to recording them and watching them later. That Therefore, a network like Adult Swim can charge a very high CPM for this audience. Even though it may be smaller, it's much more valuable because it's very targeted and very hard to reach. Now, we'll move on and we'll talk to how technology has influenced the way it's been, the audiences have been measured and the way networks transact with the advertiser. So technology, remember when we go back to the multi-channel and the post-network era, you've got DVR, you've got time shifting, you've got space shifting, um, you've got VOD, video on demand. Um, so there are a number of different ways for audiences to watch programming and it's not entirely um, friendly to the advertiser. So as the DVR, um, which is now in about 44 percent of homes. Okay, so DVR homes is 44% of homes. So it's not 100% of the universe, but it tends to be the much more upscale, um, urban, um, and uh, really valuable audiences out there. So time shifting has become a real problem for the advertising industry. So around five or six years ago, there was a major shift in the way measurement happened. So let me back up 10 seconds. There are a number of different ways Nielsen measures viewing. There's live, that's the number of people watching it while it airs. There's live plus same day. Now, live plus same day is anyone who watches the show even seconds after it started live. So if you just hit pause once, you're live same day. If you hit pause a number of times, you're live same day. But if you watch this within 24 hours, so even if you record it and then watch it 24 hours later, you're live same day. If you watch it within... Um, three days, you're live plus three. And if you watch it um, within seven days, you're live plus seven. And then there is even a measurement for live plus 30. 
Okay, so as the DVR became more and more pervasive, the cable networks and the advertisers disagreed on how to measure the audience. Should I value only live? Should I value only live same day? Should I value live plus three? Should I value live plus seven? The programmers really wanted to try to do something in here, live seven to live live uh, thirty. Um, the advertisers wanted to do stuff that was live or live same day. The compromise was something that was spun off of live plus three, but the advertisers said, well, what happens if someone watches the show within two days but doesn't want what but fast forwards through the commercials? I don't want to have to pay for them. So what wound up being the compromise is what's called C3. And this was a major uh, compromise in the industry. What this is, is the number of people who watch the show live plus three, so within three days, but who stay tuned for the commercials. So this is a commercial rating. They pay only for the people who watch within three days and watch the commercials. So you could have a very, very large live plus three number um, because people, let's say people record it. And there are a lot of shows out there that increase 100%, especially on cable, 100 or more percent live plus live three. So you, you, know, you could have, let's say, let's say 300,000 people watch a show live. And then over the ensuing couple of days, another 200 people watch, 200,000 people. So now your new number is 500,000. Okay, but 20% of that drops out of the commercials because they fast forward the commercials. So your new number, your C3, would be 400,000 people. So that's 400,000 people translated to a CPM, cost per thousand, or cost per per 40,000 thousands. Your C3 number would be 400, and then you multiply that times your CPM, and you get the advertising rate for that show. Shows vary. Shows like uh, Real Housewives and the shows on Adult Swim have a very high C3. Um, they retain or actually sometimes even increase their audiences over live onto C3. Other shows don't do as well. Depends really on the channel, depends on the time of day, depends on, on the show itself. So this is really how the measurement, the very complicated uh, set of data here. Um, but this is how um, advertisers and programmers measure audiences and how that translates into revenue. So now we're gonna move from the advertising uh, revenue stream into the syndication revenue stream. So. Syndication means taking a show off its original program home, its network, and putting it somewhere else. That's not the actual specific definition, but that's close enough for jazz. So syndication can come in really two basic forms that I see right now, but everyone's definition of syndication is a little bit different. Sometimes some of the things that people put into syndication, I put into licensing. Some of the things that I put into licensing, other people put in syndication. So I'm going to use my definitions and I'll cover most of the bases, I hope. But syndication comes into one of two um, different ways for me. There's traditional and traditional syndication is something that most of us have seen over and over and over again. So you're watching your local uh, broadcast affiliate or you're watching a cable channel and you see a show that originally aired somewhere else on this channel in what most people call repeats. So you're watching your local Fox broadcast affiliate and at 7 o'clock in the afternoon, Friends comes on 
or Two and a Half Men comes on, or the most popular syndicated show right now, Big Bang Theory comes on. That's a show that's been syndicated. CBS ran Big Bang Theory and still runs Big Bang Theory in its original form. And then a company, a company usually owned by whoever um, broadcast that show originally, in, the case, in this case, CBS Sales, takes it and syndicates it. They sell it to local affiliates or sometimes cable networks. So right now, I think TBS is running Big Bang Theory, and they're doing quite well with it. That's syndication. So in this case, TBS pays CBS a syndication fee for each episode of Big Bang Theory. And in exchange, oftentimes, again, I'll go back to this wheel. Remember this wheel? So if this is 22 minutes, okay, and eight of it goes to uh, promo or advertising, or local, um, oftentimes the original syndicator, the one who created the show, will take a minute for themselves or 30 seconds for themselves as part of the deal. So the fees actually sometimes get mitigated by this kind of barter exchange. But generally speaking, what you have is the syndicator charging the syndicatee or the new network a fee for every episode. And these things can get very, very expensive. So for example, Family Guy, which is probably one of the most popular syndicated shows out right now, it originated on Fox. They syndicated it actually to Adult Swim. The show had been canceled. Adult Swim put it on and it became so popular so fast that Fox actually put it back into production and brought it back to the network. And now you'll see that show pretty much everywhere. You see it on TBS, uh, you see it on Adult Swim, you see it on a number of different local networks. Um, and that generates um, Fox, in this case, uh, News Corp, a tremendous amount of syndication revenue. Um, the fees for that one show alone are in the tens and, and actually hundreds of millions of dollars because they've made so many episodes um, and they run so often and so many people are running them that hundreds of millions of dollars comes into the syndicator on a yearly basis. And um, what you have there is a critical mass of revenues coming back for a show that perhaps isn't necessarily as profitable in its original form, but because it's got a long tail, it has a number of episodes, um, it generates revenue. The key number here is 100. Usually it takes around 100 episodes for a show to become uh, viable as a syndication device. The reason for that is, is you want to be able to put it on in what's called a strip. You want to be able to run it. If you watch Big Bang Theory or Family Guy on a network, it, it runs usually the same time every night or the same night every week. And that's what's called either a vertical strip or, I'm sorry, either a horizontal strip, got my directions wrong, or a vertical strip. The other kind of syndication, and this is what I put into syndication, is what's called OTT. So I mentioned this before. OTT is over the top. And what this is, is companies like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, and others who um, license a show or take a syndication fee for a show, um, and then they sell it on what's called subscription video on demand. These are not individual sales like iTunes which I'll get to in a second. Um, but this is Netflix, which you pay a monthly fee to and get an all-you-can-eat experience on their platform. Same thing with Hulu Plus and Amazon, Amazon Prime. This is a relatively new advent in the television business, but it's become a very, very big revenue generator for a lot of programmers. So when you go and you watch 
25 episodes of Breaking Bad or Mad Men uh, or um, Arrested Development on Netflix, um, there's been a f- one large fee paid by Netflix to the original programmer, um, as opposed to a per episode uh, uh, renewal basis um, that, that is more traditional in, in the regular syndication. This is a brand new type of syndication, and it has been re- very important um, to the um, television business because home video, um, you know, the DVD business is decreasing greatly every year. It still exists, but the physical product itself is probably going to go away over a relatively, you know, not much time left in that business, I would say, um, because the digital product is such so much more convenient, gives so much more control to the consumer. So these are the two basic areas of syndication the way that I see them. Now I'm going to move from syndication to a different port, uh, part of the licensing revenues, or what I call straight licensing. So licensing breaks down to basically a bunch of different areas, and I'll, I'll break them down here. So licensing. Number one, um, what I call home video. Um, but what's interesting is home video is no longer um, what we think of when we think of home video from a, a decade ago. It's not a physical product as much anymore, although I do include that here. Um, so there's the, the DVD business. But more traditionally, it's things like iTunes and Amazon, uh, etc. So this is individual program sales. And the difference between this and what I called syndication is that this is an individual show. This isn't an all-you-can-eat. You You go to iTunes, you pay $0.99 or $1.99, and you get a show, as opposed to going to a thing like Netflix, paying $8 a month and getting all-you-can-eat. The second, and this is a very big one for certain programmers, is merchandising. So merchandising are things like SpongeBob SquarePants lunchboxes and, Spon- and uh, uh, Dora the Explorer backpacks and, uh, and uh, UFC clothing. Um, this is taking a brand and turning it into some level of product. Um, and this is becoming really big, especially as you know you have uh, cooking utensils branded to the Food Network. Um, you have Skinny Girl uh, alcohol branded to uh, Bethany Frankel off of Real Housewives. This is becoming a real big um, business, especially for some shows. Not for everybody, but more and more. Um, a subset of this could really be um, the live performances. So you see Glee uh, doing uh, uh, tours and charging an exorbitant amount of money. Um, you see an- another one can actually be um, things like movies. So it's, this is really, you know, you see the, the uh, Hannah Montana movie or you see the uh, SpongeBob SquarePants movie. These are extensions of the brand. And then lastly, um, I call international. Now, again, there's a, there's a, a number of different theories around this. Um, international, no S. International. Um, or home video, a lot of people would put into syndication, especially when you talk about things like iTunes. Um, but basically, I call them licensing because they're called licensing agreements. International is becoming an enormous um, revenue stream. And in, in, in for some programming entities, it's, it's upwards of 30 to maybe almost 40% of their revenue on an ongoing basis. And this is the sales of individual programs to foreign territories. Um, when you look at a show like The Daily Show, it plays not just in America, but it plays on different channels, not necessarily called Comedy Central, 
all over the, the planet Earth. Um, and the same can be said for uh, shows like uh, Nurse Jackie and uh, uh, CSI. Um, when, when the shows play here and they get to a critical number of episodes, somewhere around 100, um, they can transfer and move overseas and, and generate substantial revenues. There's also the channel business. So History Channel has channels all over the world. Discovery has channels all over the world. Um, sometimes those channels are owned by the original network, but oftentimes they're licensing the name to someone else and they're creating a channel over there. So there are other forms of licensing that go on, but these are the big chunks that, as I see them. And this is becoming a, a pretty substantial portion of revenue, especially for established channels with great big brands like ESPN and Nickelodeon and Disney. So now we're gonna move from the four areas of revenue. We covered them. They were advertising, syndication, licensing fee, and sub fees. So we've covered the revenues. Now we're gonna talk about how the money leaves the business and where all of those revenues go to create the programming and channel brands that you know and love. So we talked about the revenues in, now we're gonna talk about the, the expenses out. This is how networks spend their money um, to create the programming and the channel brands that you talk about. And these are also how they create the value for the advertisers and for the MVPDs, their clients. So each programmer has three basic clients, you the consumer, the MVPD, and the advertiser, and they have to create great brands and great programs, iconic programs, in order to create true value. So again, we'll go back to our little pie chart here, almost a circle, split it into four, because that's easy for me to remember. There are many different ways to slice this pie, but I'm putting it into four big slices. Um, the biggest one is programming. This is the largest uh, portion of the pie. The second usually um, is marketing, advertising uh, the brands themselves. Um, then comes operations, and operations is how the channel gets to you. And last um, would be admin, and I'll get into what that means in a second. So these are the four general areas that I create um, to slice up um, where the expense goes in any business. And it's important to know where these things lie, because if you're looking for a job in the cable business or in the television business, um, you want to go where the money is. Um, but also, you want to be able to pick jobs that suit your special talents within each one of these general areas. So we're going to start with programming. So programming breaks down into a number of different areas, but I'm going to break them into two major chunks. The first chunk is original programming. So original programming is exactly what it sounds like. Programs that are original to the network on which they run. So an original program on HBO would be True Blood. An original program on Comedy Central um, would be The uh, Daily Show or South Park. Um, and that's different from those syndicated shows or those licensed shows that I talked about earlier. So you can watch Comedy Central and see Always Sunny in Philadelphia or 30 Rock, but those are not originals. Those are licensed or syndicated shows. So original can break down into a number of different genres. Um, one of the bigger things is live. So the NFL, Monday Night Football on ESPN, the VMAs uh, on MTV, um, any number of different live, or I'll call that event. Um, and these are traditional, they're specials, they're not really series television. Um, then there's drama. I think that's pretty evident what that is. So those are things like, um, like uh, Damages uh, or um, Sons of Anarchy or uh, American Horror Story. Um, and then comedy, again, 
some things like Louie. This is South Park. It's his daily show. Um, and then uh, there's stuff that we call nonfiction. A lot of people uh, call this reality programming. And this is everything from Pawn Stars to Real Housewives to Jersey Shore. Um, but you know there are things like Intervention, which are a little less reality and a little bit more documentary. So I actually put um, nonfiction as the masthead over that because there are different, many different forms of nonfiction. Actually, you could also put uh, game shows into nonfiction. Um, um, there's a number of different ways uh, to go about that. So these are the basic areas of, of original programming. Now I'm going to talk about how um, those costs are split up on how a television show actually becomes a reality. So original programming is created uh, through a very long process. Uh, um, Producers and writers create a show, they pitch it to the networks. The networks, um, sometimes they do pilots, sometimes they do scripts, and then there's a green light, and then the show is produced, and it gets on the air. Um, but I'll break it into major chunks here. The first is development. And development is just that. It's how a show gets developed from an idea into an actual show itself. Sometimes this is done through pilots. Sometimes it's done just through scripting. Sometimes it's done through a combination of these things. Um, there's casting that goes into this. Um, there's uh, uh, deal making that goes into this. This is a very uh, laborious process. Um, and actually, most of the shows that get developed never get produced. They never make it to air. There are a number of different shows out there that end in the script stage. There are a number of shows that end out there at the pilot stage. There's a number of shows that, that end at the treatment stage. Um, which is the early stage where it's really just one piece of paper or a couple pieces of paper that talk about a show and an idea show before a script gets ordered, before a pilot gets made. Um, so this process starts at an idea, uh, moves to a pitch, moves to a script, moves to a pilot, moves to a show. Ipsips. Um, so this is you know, a very short way of talking about how a show becomes a law, um, but that's a basic uh, shorthand on, on the development process. And inside here, there are a number of different ex executives. There are producers, there are executive producers, there are showrunners, there's writers, there's talent. Um, there's directors, um, but there's also uh, people at the network who are in charge of um, development. And sometimes that's split between fiction and nonfiction, between scripted and reality. Um, so there's, this is a great big area of, of the process of how a show gets to, be, gets to happen. The second is production. And so production um, is not just action. You know, there's much more than you know, that goes into creating a production than just getting on set um, and starting to roll the cameras. Um, the biggest part of that is pre-production. Pre-production involves finding the locations. Actually, it goes back further than that. Let's let's break this down a little bit more. Budgeting. So you got budgeting. You got to come up with the budget. You've got to actually get. Uh, you got to take the idea and turn it into scripts. There's casting. There's location. There's unions to negotiate with. So all, all most of the television that you see, there's a writers' union, there's a directors' union, there's an actors' union. Not all television, but many of them. There's um, tax credits to be gotten. Um, certain states offer tax benefits if you shoot a show in their state. Um, many different states offer different tax credits. So there's a tremendous amount of action that takes place after a green light. So when a pilot is chosen, it's then green lighted or green lit, depending on 
what kind of syntax you want to use. And then you go into production. Um, when you're in production, you've got all this stuff to do even before you yell action. Um, there's a, there's, there are people who just, they just um, work on casting. There are people who are uh, script doctors and there are a number of revisions that go there too. There's a tremendous amount of work that goes into production before you start. And then when you're on uh, set, you have all of the uh, people who are on set there, the directors, the second directors, the uh, line producers, um, all the logistical people that go into the production there. And then after you're done production, you've got post. So post is um, editing. Um, it's sound mixing. It's uh, color correcting. Um, it's title sequences and all those, you know, all those cool graphics that you see at the beginning of a show and at the end of the show. All of that has to be made, and all of that's done not necessarily always simultaneously when the show's coming. Sometimes you wait to see what you've got and you've cut it together, and then you add the graphics package afterwards. So the post actually can be almost as long as the production period, depending on what the show is. Um, certain shows shoot very fast, but then take a long time to edit. Um, reality shows are a good example of that. Uh, you know, a nonfiction or a reality show um, can shoot relatively short period of time. You look at something like a Pawn Stars or um, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. That show shoots in a relatively short period of time, but then it all comes down to the editing process. And there are a number of different people um, who get involved at, at that point, a number of notes that are given, and then it's cut and recut. And then finally, it gets to air. It becomes a deliverable. The show itself becomes a deliverable, and it winds up in the network's hand and winds up on the air. So that's a very quick overview of how an original show um, gets made and all of the different potential jobs that come along with um, making that show uh, a television show that you would see on a network. Now um, we're going to move into an, another large portion of the network business, and that's marketing. So marketing is another major part of any um, network's operation, but it's also a big part of the operations of an MVPD. Um, it's also the whole section of the business um, called advertising is really a section of marketing, a, a, a part of a discipline of marketing. So the marketing business in television is enormous. Um, the advertisers are all marketing on channels. The channels are all marketing to themselves. The MVPDs are marketing to you, the consumer, and they're marketing individual networks. So this is an, a huge section of the television business. I'm going to give you a top-line view of it, but there are nuances and sections of it that I won't get into. But again, when we do the master's forum in the fall, you can check it out. And we're going to dive much deeper into it. Same with all of the sections too, by the way. Um, so marketing, uh, there are a number of different uh, disciplines. Uh, probably the, the sexiest or the coolest is creative. So the, the creative is exactly what it sounds like. You're coming up with concepts, um, you're thinking of campaigns, you're cutting promos, um, everything that you see on a network um, from their logo to the bug, the animated bug that animates in the corner, to the promos that they cut, to the look and feel, to the whole you know, interface of a television network, that comes out of what we call the creative department. And then there are, there are agencies that are dedicated to creating creative. So when you look at, actually recently, the CW relaunched their whole look. Um, that was a whole bunch of research and a number of different areas that banded together to create a brand new interface for an entire network. That's a lot of work um, that goes into that. The second would be media. So media is when you're reading a newspaper, you're watching a television show, you, and you see a commercial for a network or a program 
or a cable operator or an MVPD or Fios or any of those brands, someone has to buy that media. And media planning is a substantial part of the television business. It's not just uh, for the networks and for the uh, television people themselves, but there are media planners who think about how to put commercials on for cars and, uh, and tomatoes and orange juice. Um, and this is a, a very big and powerful portion of the business. And frankly, the media portion of the, of, of the marketing discipline um, pretty much dictates where a lot of the revenues go in this business. And so it's a very powerful um, and it's a big section of the uh, marketing economy as well. PR, public relations. So you know, you can buy advertising. It's very hard to buy PR. And when you look at some of the most successful shows um, over the last couple of years, many of them um, didn't have enormous marketing campaigns. They just had great PR. Um, and, and PR is a, a discipline that's probably difficult, uh, more difficult than many of the others because they have to get on the phone and pitch a show. They have to get people excited about a show without having to be able to pay them um, to do so. So this is a, a very difficult discipline and it's a very specific set of uh, professionals who work in that part of the, of the marketing economy. Um, social. Social and uh, web. I'm going to combine these two together, although they're not really the same thing. So social media has become enormously important to the television business. Um, you look at Twitter and Facebook, 76% of all um, posts on social media, whether that's Facebook or GetGlue or Miso or, or Twitter, happen while the show is live. So despite the fact that DVRs and other things have helped people time shift, social media is bringing back the viewer to live viewing in a way that I don't think any, many people anticipated. And it's, and it's pretty cool. You look at the social media that happened during the Super Bowl, um, not all of it was just organic. A lot of it was uh, pushed along, as they say. You look at what Coca-Cola did during the Super Bowl, that was a pretty substantial um, and pretty cool piece of uh, social programming. And then web is web advertising, web marketing, banners, um, all that type of stuff. But what's cool is that it also means the website. Uh, if you look at um, Bravo's website and their talk bubble, someone had to conceive that. Somebody has to run that. Um, if you look at uh, the website for uh, the Colbert show, or you look at the, the website for Adult Swim, or you look at the, the website for CNN, there's a tremendous amount of effort that goes into programming, creating, and uh, maintaining those websites that are sit alongside the primary brands. And then you have all of the MVPDs and all of their websites. So Comcast has Xfinity. Um, and that's a, a great place and fancast to go watch television programming that perhaps you missed. Um, and a big part of this, I think I mentioned this before, is TV everywhere. So the idea that you can catch up on television shows later if you've missed them or if you're out of your home and you can sign and log on um, to watch your television shows, someone's got someone's to take care of that. Someone has to maintain that and someone has to market that. Um, events. Um, there are a number of events um, that happen during the course of the year. This is everything from conferences and, and trade things, but to major stunts. You know, when someone does a screening in, in Central Park or in Times Square for, to time to a premiere of a television show, someone's got to manage that event. Um, when you look at uh, things like the NBA All-Star Game, um, there are huge events that go on alongside those, those programs. The VMAs have an enormous event, not just the show itself, but the event that goes on around the show. Someone needs to manage that. It's a lot of people uh, in the business. And then, you know, there's the stuff 
um, that I talked about before as revenue, um, but they're also marketing disciplines. So ad sales and affiliate or MVPD sales, there's a, there's a section of the marketing economy dedicated just at these things. Every year there's something called the upfronts. So the upfronts are the section of the year where networks sell a year's worth of advertising in advance to the advertisers. Someone needs to come up with the PowerPoint presentations and the overall events, back to events, and the overall story. Um, and then somebody has to market um, the networks during that period of time to the advertisers. This is a very specific section of marketing. And the same thing with affiliates. Someone specializes in communicating channel brands to MVPDs. And that's a section of marketing called affiliate marketing. So this is a very quick overview on how uh, television marketing works. Um, again, we're going to be doing a big section of this at the Cable Mavericks Forum in the fall. Um, but this is a, this is a top line view at, at television marketing. Um, next, uh, we're going to move on to uh, operations and how a television network gets to you, the viewer. So operations um, is really I would argue one of the important, if not the most important thing that can happen in a television business. Um, it's great that you have great programming. It's great that you have great marketing. But if when you turn on the television, nothing's there, doesn't make a noise. It's a joke. Um, so the 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 operations of a television network, and frankly, the operations of the television business are labyrinth. Um, it's a very detailed, um, uh, de uh, very complicated process to get from a television a signal uh, to your home. But I'm going to break it down into a couple of different major areas. Broadcast operations. And this is, um, there are a number of different elements that go into this. So when, when a programmer or a network sends a signal, um, it has to go somewhere. And so there's the people who have to start at the programmer, sorry, at the programmer um, slash network. Okay, um, and they're pitching it, so they're putting it out there, and so they have a whole operation, um, uh, a playout center um, where they QC, um, which is quality control. Um, they digitize, they store, they log, they create um, the traffic systems. So uh, every spot, every television commercial, every promo, every 15-second thing, every little graphic thing that pops up at the bottom, which we call lower thirds, every animated little logo over here, someone has to sit in a control room, a very hot, dark control room, sweating their back off, um, in, in, in the middle of the night to make sure all that happens. There's no windows, there's very little air, kind of like this studio. Um, and they, they have to make sure that every little thing happens correctly. Um, it's a very complicated uh, thing. When you watch television, notice every swipe, notice every little animation, notice every transition in and out of commercial. All that doesn't happen just automatically. That's a big deal. Now, it's much easier now that we're moving to what's called a tapeless world where there's no tape and it's all digital, but it's still a, a very labor-intensive and complicated process. So this is it out. Then there's catching. So the MVPD has to take that signal and get it back out to you, the consumer. Again, there's someone sitting in a control room looking at the signals come in, QCing it before it gets back out to the, to the head end. And then they have to make sure that it goes to every region and to every uh, head end and then to every single home. Um, well, you know, we only notice our, uh, our, our cable operator when the signal goes dark, but tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of hours of television happen without a glitch. 
Um, so that does not happen very easily. And there's a number of different people in our industry who are um, creating the boxes that you use, engineering those boxes, engineering the remote control, making sure that all of these systems work, making sure that the, the, the compression rate is correct and actually that it actually speeds up and gets to you faster. And frankly, this is one of the areas of our business that we have a hardest time recruiting for. There are not enough engineers, there are not enough technicians, there are not enough people proficient in this type of stuff to fill the jobs that we have. And frankly, we need much more engineers and, and inventors and people who can help us make the experience better on an ongoing basis. So if you have a, any kind of inkling towards the technical end of the business, there's a great opportunity um, here for you to find job and actually help us steer the business into the future. So the second uh, thing I'm going to do is what I call um, uh, scheduling and uh, traffic. So scheduling is a complex um, and important part of the business. And really, um, it's a bit of a science. So shows don't just pop up. Um, there's, a, there's a huge grid that includes every hour and every half hour of every day. And the scheduler, the head of scheduling, has to spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about what shows go in what area. Um, and the idea of flow, so how one show leads into another. Now, in a time-shifted world, flow is not nearly as important as it used to be. But if you look and you look at where shows land on the schedule, oftentimes there's a rationale behind it and you'll see shows increase their viewership. A really great example um, this year, FX premiered Charlie Sheen's new show, Anger Management. And the show got an enormous audience um, when it first came on the air and it's actually maintained a pretty high audience. The shows that came after it, Wilfred and Louie have done appreciably better in their second seasons because of the enormous lead-in that they've gotten from this new show, Anger Management. So that is an example of flow actually working for existing shows. Um, and new audiences finding a show that wouldn't have. The scheduler makes that happen. They also have to count the number of times every program runs um, on every, uh, on every um, network. So this is a really important job. Traffic, like I said uh, earlier, this is taking, um, taking program elements, um, taking uh, promos, taking spots, and making sure they run in, the, in all the right places. So it's more than that. It's actually um, making sure that all of the spots are counted, um, that every advertiser gets what they paid for, um, that every spot runs in the right show. There are certain spots that have to run in certain shows, and there are certain spots that are not allowed to run in other shows. It's the uh, counting of the different elements that each advertiser and each promo gets. Uh, the, in, when you work at a, a network or you actually work at an NVPD on the local basis, certain elements of the network are supposed to run a certain number of times. The people who work in traffic manage all of that, they oversee all that, and then they create enormous amounts of reports that go back to everybody else in the different areas to make sure that they're getting what they need. So now I'm going to move from operations to administration. So one of the most important parts of programming a network is acquiring the right content. You have original content that is created just for the network itself, but many networks have a lot of programming on their, their networks that didn't start there, and it's called acquisitions. So acquisitions, I'm a terrible speller, remember. Acquisitions, I forgot to see, are shows that are acquired for the network um, that did not start there. 
So the biggest chunk of these oftentimes are syndicated shows, series that started somewhere else, like Family Guy on Adult Swim, uh, or 30 Rock on Comedy Central, um, or Two and a Half Men on TBS. Um, these shows started somewhere else, and they come on the network because that network makes a licensing deal, a syndication deal, to get that show on their network. Uh, the second big bu bu uh, bucket of acquired content is films. Um, films are, uh, you see them across a number of different networks, um, even those that have a, a ton of original programming like HBO. So HBO has a great amount of original content that's usually on Sunday or Monday night. The rest of the week, though, they have a lot of movies on. Same with Showtime, same with Stars. Um, but that's also true of networks like FX um, and AMC. Um, they're known often for their originals, but oftentimes a big part of their schedule are films. And that's a, a, a large part of their uh, programming budget. And it's also a whole practice within their network operation. There's a whole team that's dedicated to acquiring content. Um, they acquire the content in syndication, or they take a license on a film, and then they, they work with the scheduling group to get it on the schedule as needed. And these, these shows, these films and these acquired series are oftentimes a big block of the programming on the networks, and they help um, keep people drawn in, bring audiences in to introduce to the original programs that are on the network itself. So that's acquisitions, um, and now let's move on. So another section of the uh, operation of a television network, and a, a really important one, is an administration. So administration. I'm a terrible speller. I think that's right. So administration is everything that's the backbone of the business. The, the people who pay the bills, the people who, uh, um, who send out the invoices. Um, but it, I'll break it into the bigger chunks. And actually, operations and administration sometimes can cross over into each other. So I'll probably repeat some of the stuff that I, that I will do in the operations uh, uh, section here. But these are the big chunks. Uh, finance. So finance, nothing happens if the bills don't get paid and the money doesn't come in. Um, these are the people who keep the business plan, uh, who make sure all the money is in the right place, who actually work um, with the, the MVPDs and, and the people at the MVPDs work with the networks to make sure that there's um, uh, correct controls and that everybody's being paid the right amount of money. So a lot of discussion between the advertisers and how they pay their bills and the networks and how they receive the money and actually how the invoicing goes out. So this is an enormous um, part of the business and something that is uh, um, sometimes underappreciated but enormously valuable. If you don't have a good finance department, you don't really have a business. Um, second, business affairs. Business affairs is everything from contracts um, and negotiations. And you think about the number of contracts that, that transpire between MVPDs and networks, networks and advertisers, uh, networks and production companies, networks and actors, networks and directors. There's a lot of contracts that go into that, and there's a lot of negotiation that goes on with that. There's unions. Um, there's uh, 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 every different level of licensing agreements. Um, when, a, when a movie appears on a network, someone has to negotiate the deal between the studio um, and the network. Um, there are a ton of people who work in this area. And again, without these two areas, you're not really going to see television on a, on a nightly basis. Um, another uh, big part of this uh, 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 section in administration is human resources. So, you know, I, I am a firm believer that um, no company as, is better than the people that work there. 
So if you don't have a good staff and you don't have a good recruiting and you don't have a good culture, um, you don't really have a company that, that's worth very much to the outside world. Human resources, employee relations, they recruit, um, they hire, um, they sometimes have to fire, but they do much more than that. They deal with the employee benefits. Um, they deal with um, all of the things like maternity leave and paternity leave. They deal with um, all the elements that make a company's employees satisfied and engaged. So this is a really important area. Lastly, and this is an area that, that sometimes I think falls into, um, falls into operations, but I'm going to put it here. Um, and this is um, pricing and inventory. Actually, inventory management. So there's a number of different things that go, that go on here. So the pricing is is typically has to do with um, the cost uh, that a network charges an advertiser or a local provider charges an advertiser. So if you don't price yourself correctly, you can sell out all the advertising on your network, but still not make enough money. So someone has to sit there and tell me how much the oranges cost. And that's an analogy, but every spot has to have the right amount. And every part of the day, or what we call day parts. So morning is one cost. Prime time is another cost. Late night is another cost. That's someone's job. And that's a, a very detailed piece of analysis that goes on on a nightly basis. But someone also has to figure out how much a network charges an MVPD for subscriptions. Um, someone has to work within an MVPD um, business to dictate what the, the price, uh, what price will be borne by the consumers um, for cable. Um, or for broadband. So pricing out your business and making sure that the construct of your, of your selling proposition is what the market will bear is really vital because if you charge too much, you don't sell enough. If you charge too little, you sell too much. And either place, you wind up in the wrong, you wind up in the wrong place. Um, inventory management is a number of different things. So managing the number of spots that are sold in any given day. So there are uh, a number of hours, 24 hours in every day. There are um, a number of different spots in every hour. And, and if you again, if you sell too much, um, you know that's a big problem. But also, uh, what you'll note is that you rarely see uh, two car commercials back to back. And if you do. That's because they're selling a lot of car advertising on that network. But oftentimes, categories of advertisers don't want to be near each other. Also, they really don't want to be near their own spots. No advertiser wants to run two spots in the same break. Someone has to take care of that. That's inventory management. But another piece of inventory management is oftentimes when a network licenses a television show or a film, they're only allowed to run it so many times for that license. So someone has to manage that inventory so that it doesn't run out um, too fast. That's part of the acquisitions business. It's part of the scheduling business. But I also put it into this inventory management, pricing, and planning section as well. Um, so you know the, the train cars running at the right speed, the number of train cars to hook up to each engine, that's a, a big piece of making sure that a network or an MVPD or a local affiliate runs smoothly. And these areas here are the backbone. Sometimes they're underappreciated but not by me and not by the people who run these businesses because without these four areas and, and, and the sub areas underneath them, there is no television to watch. So now let's move on. So as you can see, the television industry has changed enormously since the early days. Um, it's come a long way from that time when 66 million people used to sit down together to watch All in the Family all at once to now when they can watch whatever show they want, whenever they want, wherever they want. It's a great business, it's changing every day, and as it changes, it becomes more complex, more tailor-made for the audiences, and a, a much better opportunity for those people who want to try to work in the business.
I talked about a lot today and I talked very fast. Um, so if you want more information on anything that I've talked about, you can look around the Cable Center uh, website or you can come back to this website for live streams of the Cable Mavericks Masters Forum from the Paley Center in New York City this fall. Or you can join us live at the Paley Center and see panels on marketing and programming administration, and operations. You're going to get to see a case study about how one show went from an idea to an actual popular hit television series. There's going to be a lot of information, a lot of great people, a lot of great executives from the television business. Um, you're going to have a lot to learn, and I think you'll, you'll really enjoy it. I hope you enjoyed this time. My name's Evan Shapiro. I've been here for the Cable Mavericks Masters Forum, and I hope to see you this fall. Thanks. You've just heard TV 101, part of the Cable Center's podcast series, Stories from the Head End. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Luke Woodruff for the Cable Center, the nonprofit organization that helps support and fuel the ongoing impact of the cable industry's historic innovations and influence. Thank you for listening.